Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, the second of three special editions of Little Atoms from Mind's Eye, an audio installation of Brighton Digital Festival, featuring lots of exciting space people. The interviews you're about to hear were recorded for an audio installation, Mind's Eye, which is happening at Circus Street Market for the Brighton Digital Festival from the 13th to the 28th of September 2014. This ambitious outdoor audio piece brings art and science together and offers the audience an opportunity to explore and understand the solar system via the voices of those most familiar with it. Thanks to Andy Franskoviak and Mary Jane Edwards of Shrinking Space for asking me to take part and to Lorraine Conroy of ESA for arranging most of the interviews. Coming up are interviews with Sandra Kaufman, Deputy Project Manager on Maven, Horkan Svedhem, Project Scientist on Venus Express, and Dr Catherine Joy of the University of Manchester on the Moon. Well, my name is Sandra Kaufman, and I work for NASA. I work at the Goddard Space Flight Center, which is located in uh, Greenbelt, Maryland. I um, have a bachelor's in electrical engineering, I have a bachelor's in physics, and a master's in electrical engineering. And uh, my um, expertise is basically building satellites and instruments for the, um, any of the four science routes that NASA has, earth science, uh, astrophysics, planetary, solar physics. Um, I have done all of them. How did you first get interested in engineering and physics? Well, that goes back, way, way back to the time I was seven years old, and I'm going to date myself. I um, was watching the Apollo landing on the moon, and uh, I'm sure a lot of kids uh, that age were inspired by the moon landing, and I was uh, very inspired by it. Um, so I was seven years old, and I was uh, watching the black and white TV and the very, you know, fuzzy image, and... Uh, at that moment, I turned and told my mother that I wanted to do that someday. And my mother just told me, you know, just apply yourself and you never know where you're going to end up. So I knew I had to do something related to science or, or physics. I didn't know much about engineering or science specifically at that point in time. But as I went to elementary school and, and high school, I, uh, I knew what I needed to do. Of course, you're in Costa Rica at this time as well. I was born in Costa Rica and I uh, didn't come to the States until I was 21, yes. So how did you end up at NASA? Oh, that's another long story. You know, not to belabor too much uh, my life in Costa Rica, but I, uh, my mother was a single parent and she raised uh, all of us uh, by herself, you know, having two and three jobs at a time. And uh, 
I started working at a young age, 11 years old, when I uh, had to go and get my first job working part-time in a clothing store. And, you know, fast forward, um, I was doing well in school. I knew that I wanted to study engineering. I was I was going to graduate uh, from high school no matter what, and I was going to college anyways. Uh, I was a senior in high school when my mother met my dad. He's the, the man that is my dad, and he uh, adopted us legally. And uh, it so happened that he was born here in the United States. So when I graduated from high school, I started uh, in engineering. Not the one I wanted, because the one that I wanted wasn't ladylike. They told me that I couldn't study electrical engineering in Costa Rica because I was a woman. So I had to uh, pick industrial. And I spent three and a half years in an industrial engineering program until uh, I was 21 years old. And dad moved the family to the States. And uh, when we came here, I switched majors. And they only recognized 31 credits out of all the ones that I had. I had to start pretty much all over again. I spent another three and a half years getting my degrees. And the first job fair that I went, the first job fair after graduation, I got hired by a, a company that was, uh, they were contractors for NASA. I worked there three years and then I um, applied directly to the agency and I had been, last February, um, I had my 23rd anniversary. So let's talk about MAVEN. So what was the mission for? MAVEN the, it stands for Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution. Uh, MAVEN is going to study the processes that have contributed to the the way the Mars atmosphere is, is currently. It is a, a very thin atmosphere. It's a very arid planet, and we know that uh, it doesn't have a magnetic field like it exists on, on Earth. So the solar wind is constantly stripping the atmosphere from Mars, and we are going to try to understand those processes. We're going to try to um, measure the rates of escape, and uh, hopefully once we obtain all the data, we're going to be able to extrapolate to see how uh, Mars was uh, 4 billion years ago and see if the atmosphere was thicker and uh, with a higher pressure than it could have supported uh, uh, water on the surface. And, you know, the, the interpretation is if we can say that there was water and we have evidence that there were rivers and channels and lakes, you know, then we probably could say that maybe there was some form of life. I don't know. What's your current role in the mission? What's your day-to-day -day life like at the moment? Well, as you know, we launched last November. Uh, so it really the last few months hasn't been much for many of us because, uh, you know, I am part of the development team. I am not going to be on the operations team. I'm not. I mean, I like to build them and launch them. And once uh, they are fully checked out, uh, then uh, we turn them over to uh, the operations team. Uh, so my role since launch has been quite diminished. And I started actually uh, working on uh, with another principal investigator on, on a comet mission for the you know, future discovery proposal. But, you know, I was the deputy project manager. I am still the deputy project manager on the mission. And day to day, my job was working with the team and making sure that uh, we address all of the, the technical issues that came up. We had many. Uh, the schedule, make sure that we stayed on track, that we stay on budget. Uh, you know, so um, it is a team effort and we all have to be totally engaged with each other and make sure that we are on the same page. So a lot of meetings, a lot of interactions, a lot of travel. Describe what the probe looks like. What does Maven look like? Well, Maven looks like, um, oh my gosh, okay, so it's about the size of a school bus with the wings uh, extended, completely extended, weighs, um, uh, without the fuel, it weighs about 900 kilograms, with fuel, it's about 2,500 kilograms, which is about the weight of a fully loaded um, utility vehicle uh, with uh, suitcases and people and everything. 
it is uh, it's got fixed solar arrays so and it's got a, uh, some instruments that are mounted on a pointing platform so uh, we have to make sure that the satellite is constantly uh, looking at the sun and if we need to observe the uh, sniff the, the atmosphere you know the pointing platform is the one that is going to move the variety uh, of the instruments that we have we have um, uh, 80 instruments uh, are mounted on the face that is faced towards the sun and the instruments that are in the pointing flat platform are, are the instruments that are going to analyze the, the atmosphere. And what sort of instruments and you know, what sort of things does it carry? It carries a variety of, of ion detectors, it carries a mass spectrometer, uh, electron detectors and a magnetometer that is mounted on the, on the wind tips. So uh, most of the instruments are, you know, are going to be able to look at the, analyze, assess uh, the the ionic um, um, effects on the atmosphere, the electrons, the magnetic field, that the remnants of the magnetic field that are still on Mars. Where are we now? When does it arrive at Mars? The satellite is due to arrive at Mars September 21st in around 10, I don't know the exact, I don't remember exactly, 10 something uh, in the evening, EST time. And we are almost there. Uh, it is very, very close. But a uh, couple of days before we get there, we're going to upload the commands and hope for the best. And describe what happens when it gets there. So we have a lot of stuff that we need to do, of course. So the MOI will, will occur on the Mars orbit inser- insertion is MOI, uh, will occur on uh, September 21st. The sequence activates about three days out for the mission, and um, three days out, we are going to configure the go-fast recovery because we do have a, a go-fast recovery in case, uh, you know, it's about a, a, a one hour before. We are going to have to be in contact with the Earth, the entire burn sequence, but, uh, you know, the signal takes several minutes to get to us, so we're not going to be able to uh, uh, know whether it occurred on, until, you know, it has occurred or, or not. We are going to um, uh, make sure that the batteries are completely charge. We're going to do all the uplinks prior to the MOI. Then we're going to make sure that we have the prop tank um, uh, preheated. And then we're going to start completely uh, slowing down to the point that we are going to be able to enter the grab the, the atmosphere. We're going to enter the orbit in Mars at about a 35-hour capture orbit. And we only have a uh, like I said, uh, one chance to do that capture. So hopefully we are going to be able to uh, slow down. It's about a 33-minute event. If it captured correctly, we'll get a signal about 33 minutes letting us know that that we are in. If not, then uh, we know that something went wrong. Can we talk about what we expect to learn about the atmosphere? Why is it going? You mean the science? Yes. Can you talk about that? Yes, of course, yes. I mean, we are going to try to understand how Mars became the planet that it is currently. Uh, I can try to go a little bit more into the... um, Let me do it this way, you know. So the objectives for the mission are going to be to determine what is the role that the loss of volatiles from the Mars atmosphere to space has played through time. So we're going to try to explore the whole history of the Mars atmosphere and the climate, the liquid water, the planetary habitability. We're going to try to see what Mars would have looked like 4 billion years ago. 
we're going to try to determine what is the current state of the upper atmosphere, the ionosphere, and all the interactions with the solar wind, so we can get a full picture of how Mars is currently and understand, you know, the processes that are currently occurring on Mars. Uh, we're also going to try to determine the, the rates of escape of all the ions, all the neutrals, and all the processes that are controlling all of that by measuring those rates is going to allow us to extrapolate to how Mars would have been four billion years ago. And of course, all the we're going to try to measure all the ratios of all the isotopes. Uh, that is going to also tell us the story of loss through time. This also will tell us, I guess, an answer to whether or not the atmosphere once contained water. Just to understand whether the atmosphere was thick enough and enough pressure. The pressure on Earth is on the uh, 1,013 millibars. On Mars, is about 7 millibars. And the reason that water is able to stay on, on Earth, on the surface, is because of the pressure on, in the atmosphere that we have. On Mars, it's, there is no, not enough pressure. So if the pressure, if the, there was enough thick atmosphere on Mars 4 billion years ago, we could have, uh, have the, the uh, water on the surface of Mars. What role does the sun and the sort of space weather, the solar wind, play? Well, the theory goes that, uh, you know, the solar wind is, of course, you know, constantly blowing. We know that it is. And uh, on Earth, we have the magnetosphere that protects us from the erosion. Uh, so whenever the solar wind is constantly blowing and the, and the magnetosphere is constantly protecting Earth on Mars, somehow the magnetic field was turned off. There are remnants of the magnetic field, but... Uh, uh, it was turned off, so the magnetosphere does not exist to protect the planet from that erosion. So the solar wind is constantly eroding the atmosphere. We want to understand those processes better. Do we have, I mean, what are the theories on why that happened? So we're sending MAVEN to Mars to investigate the history of the atmosphere, but what do we think? it will find? What do we think happened to the atmosphere? There are two ongoing theories. One is that all the carbon dioxide was absorbing to the crust on Mars. The other one is that it escaped into space. And the prevailing thinking is that it did escape to space. And that's why we are going to try to measure those processes based on what we know and what the other missions that we have sent. There is not enough carbon dioxide on the crust to justify the atmosphere actually going in, in the crust. So um, it is uh, our thinking that it did, it did effectively escape into space, and that's why we are sending MAVEN to measure that. What does studying the atmosphere, the history of atmosphere on Mars, tell us about Earth? Well, we don't know the exact processes that are currently occurring on, on Mars. Uh, we know that Mars could have supported liquid water. There is evidence of uh, rivers, lakes, oceans, as I explained before, but what happened? So by trying to understand the processes that are currently occurring on Mars, we can try to better understand to see if some of those processes are currently occurring on Earth and whether the Earth could run a similar fate than Mars, uh, uh, you know, whatever occurred on Mars. So uh, hopefully there is more to it than just uh, the solar wind, you know, taking the atmosphere into space. But by better understanding what happened on Mars, we could understand also whether something similar could happen here. And I don't know if we could or not do something about it, but, uh, but at least it will help us, uh, you know, with uh, uh, more data. What is the lifespan of this mission? Uh, the primary mission is one year. 
uh, in one year, we're going to be able to um, uh, circle the planet in a very uh, highly elliptical orbit. Uh, it's going to go as low as kilo- 150 kilometers in main orbit. We're going to do five uh, dip, uh, always have a hard time saying those two words together, but uh, five uh, uh, deep dips. And um, it's going to go as low as 125 kilometers. The highest point is going to be uh, 6,000 plus kilometers. And in one year, we're going to be able to, the orbit is going to process and we're going to be able to uh, observe and analyze pretty much the whole uh, Martian atmosphere. We have an option for an extended mission. We are currently uh, discussing this with NASA headquarters to see if we could uh, extend the mission. And, you know, if since we have the satellite and we will have enough fuel for an extra 10 years, if they give us the, the money, we can continue operating the satellite for uh, many more years. And what else could be done? Well, the other aspect of the mission, of course, is the relay. And um, if something happens to, uh, you know, from not from the scientific point of view, but from also, you know, continuing the operations of the rovers and the future uh, InSight mission that uh, uh, will be launched uh, in 2016, we are going to be there to support those missions too. So what's next for you? What do you, as you've already mentioned, you, you know, you're part of the design team, the engineering team for it. And once it's launched, that's really you finished with Maven. So what's next? Well, um, you know, because I like working with the teams in uh, uh, building the satellites in the instruments, that's, that's what my, my strengths that lie. i I started already um, working with, uh, uh, you know, on a, until, you know, the mission gets to Mars, you know, I started working with a new uh, principal investigator on um, a proposal for a new mission to um, a comet. So I'm very excited about it. Um, one of the things that I do like doing is to start from the beginning and work uh, with the teams from the beginning. I not always have had the opportunity to do that. In Maven, I came uh, at PDR. Uh, it was very satisfying to see it to fruition. In this other mission, I would have the opportunity, if we end up getting the money from headquarters, uh, you know, working right from the very beginning, so pre-phase A. So, Sandra Kaufman, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to uh, share my story and, and my work at NASA. I'm Lewis Darnell. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Sweden, uh, from Swedish origin, but living now in, in the Netherlands since uh, 1986 when I started working for the European Space Agency in ESTEC. It's one of the technical centers and science centers of, of ESA in Nordvik in the Netherlands. And I've been working on a number of different space projects, but most recently I've been uh, been leading the, the science part of uh, Venus Express as a project scientist. And that means that I keep the science team together and I make sure that all the observations and the science that we had planned from the beginning when we designed the mission actually will be carried out and that uh, all the scientists get their data back and they are analyzed and uh, people can publish papers and present at conferences. And uh, so I sort of um, uh, have a coordinated role 
over and through the scientists in uh, in that participate in this mission. And they are from all over the world. Most of them are European, but there are a number of people from the United States, Russia, even China. What other missions did you work on before we get to Venus Express? One of the missions I worked on quite a lot was the Hogan's probe. That was a part of the Cassini mission that landed on Titan. So I was involved in, in two of the instruments there that uh, we built part of them actually in Aztec. Uh, and uh, we integrated them to uh, instruments built. One was built by uh, the Open University and one was built by uh, people in Finland together with an institute in Italy. That was a radar altimeter. Those sensors that we had there uh, worked really well when we landed on Titan about 10 years ago now, in fact, almost. And so let's talk about Venus Express. Describe what the mission is. What's it doing? Yeah, we have a, a spacecraft which is uh, derived from the sister spacecraft Mars Express. Uh, Mars Express was launched in 2003 to Mars. And um, it was uh, realized quite soon that it would be very, very smart to build a second uh, spacecraft. It was quite economical and it was the right timing to do that. Uh, so we, Venus was selected as a target for this, uh, this sister spacecraft. I just needed to have some slight modifications uh, and it was like launched towards the inner solar system rather than towards the outer solar system. And the main purpose of this is to investigate uh, quite a, a diverse uh, set of questions around Venus because um, Venus has been a bit of the forgotten planet because after the Magellan mission that uh, ended in uh, 1994, there hasn't been any spacecraft around Venus. The knowledge about other planets has, has evolved quite a lot, but for Venus we were sort of standing still. We had a good number of questions. We know, for example, that uh, there's a very high rotation of the atmosphere around Venus. The planet itself rotates very, very slowly and, and firmly rotates backwards compared to with other planets. So one, one rotation, uh, one day on Venus in that respect of rotation is 243 days, while the atmosphere rotates around the planet in only four days. So they have a really hurricane-force winds. And, and one of the big questions is, what is driving this wind? And why is it behaving like this? There are huge uh, vortices on the poles that are really spectacular to look at. We also have um, people that have watched Venus uh, with a naked eye or, or with just binoculars or even a small telescope see that it's it's sort of like a pale or actually quite bright in many occasions uh, white um, disk but with no really structure to be seen on it unlike Mars and other planets it's just uh, just all white to the to the eye but if you look at the ultraviolet light we will see a lot of structure one can see clouds moving around and so but we don't understand what is this substance that creates this dark part in the clouds is there some some gas or aerosol that is absorbing uh, absorbing ultraviolet light and also by that actually absorbing light energy from the sun and helps to probably to maintain the winds but how that works and what substance that is we don't know that's one of the things we want to see also you described it as the sister mission of of Mars Express and that's not just because the you know the two missions were sort of plotted almost simultaneously but because the crafts are very similar aren't they it's using a lot of the same equipment so what's the benefit of doing that yeah, this is very, very practical and it's very, very uh, useful to have instruments of the same kind on two different planets because you can compare then data from these instruments. And, and if the, if you know that the, data, the instruments are, are, are identical or at least very similar, you can really do very good comparison between these two planets, which are quite different, but they also have a lot of similarities. And then, of course, we have the Earth, which is right in between Mars and Venus, which is really like a twin in particular to Venus. It's more maybe more different to Mars, but 
Earth and Venus are about of the same size, approximately the same distance to the Sun. Of course, Venus is closer to the Sun than the Earth is, but uh, originally, after the, the formation of the solar system, they must have been very similar. But uh, now we know, of course, they're very different. So the big question is, how did it go that way? Why is Venus as it is? And why is Venus today not more Earth-like? Can you tell me how Venus Express fits in with I guess the history of other missions to Venus. So you mentioned Magellan, but there's also been a couple of Russian landers that landed on the surface, haven't they? So where does this mission fit into what the other missions have discovered? The first interplanetary mission that we had was actually a mission that was going to Venus. There was a very large interest in Venus in the early days of the space age. Also because there was speculations in even that there could be, first of all, it was believed that Venus was much more Earth-like today and than what actually turned out to be. And there was speculations about possible life on Venus and even seeing books with drawings of rainforests and swamps and strange creatures that would live there. And that was actually not not so crazy. It was actually well-founded ideas people had in those days when they started. But when then what, the first mission showed that really it's very, very hot down on the surface of Venus, about 460 degrees Celsius. Uh, and there cannot be any liquid water on the surface. And uh, then we have these very thick clouds of sulfuric acid droplets rather than water as on the Earth. And um, all these things together made that people realize that uh, it was quite impossible to have any life on, on Venus. And there was a whole chain of, of Russian missions, even as you said, a landers in the Venera series, in, in the Vega series. There were even balloons flying in the atmosphere of, of Venus. And all these really gave us a basic knowledge about Venus. Then the American pioneer Venus came, also dropping probes down through that atmosphere of Venus and uh, it was also had an orbiter that orbited uh, Venus for I think up to 14 years in fact and collected uh, even more information of, of the basic kind we know about Venus. But the things that I mentioned before that we, we do not know about the atmosphere, how does the atmosphere actually behave and how does it compare to other atmospheres in, in the solar system? And then we have um, the surface, which is also very much unknown. We have only a handful or so of images from these Russian landers because they only survive for a very, a very short time because of the high pressure and high temperature down there. And, and they couldn't move around and they couldn't make any pictures during the descent through the atmosphere. So there are only a few static pictures from these landing sites. Uh, so we, we know just how it looks in those places. And we don't have a good understanding of what is the composition on, of the surface in, in general. Now, of course, Venus Express was not a lander, but one of the big questions that we wanted to try to answer is that, is there any active volcanism on Venus? From the Magellan mission and, and also the Russian, the later Veneras, they had radars. They made radar maps of the surface. And, and one can see on those radar maps that there seems not to be any tectonism with tectonic plates like we have on the Earth. And that's very important because the motion of the tectonic plates on the Earth actually is able to let heat from the interior go out of the planet because the inside of the planet is continuously generated heat and that needs to get out. But on Venus, we seem not to have those plates. The question is then, how is the internal heat of Venus actually going out? We could also see from those radar images that the surface has a fairly constant coverage of impact craters. It has been bombarded at about the same rate all over the place, which is very different to other planets. So you can see that the 
surface seem to have the same age all over the place on Venus. And, and that's also very strange. So we believe that there must be some volcanism that lets these things come out because it must be very hot inside there because it's like we have a cover that isolates almost the planet. And of course, that can only work until a certain stage. At a certain stage, this heat needs to come out and, and volcanism can then be a, a way to let that go out. What equipment does it have that's going to do? You described some of the things you wanted to research. So the atmosphere, for instance, and then about the surface and the and the geology and the volcanism. So what equipment is it carrying that will look for those things? We have a, a camera, of course, uh, which has four filter bands, so it can make pictures in four different uh, wave bands. Uh, and that one we use to look at, for example, the clouds. We look at there's one in the ultraviolet uh, uh, wave band where we can see the clouds move uh, at different speeds, at different uh, latitudes, and we can see the polar vortices and, uh, and, and other interesting features. We have an instrument which is called an imaging spectrometer that is a, a sort of a camera, but it's also a spectrometer. So it measures, one can say, many, many images, but all in different uh, wave bands. And then we can see, we can look at different wavelengths where there are absorptions in different uh, gases. So we can characterize the atmosphere. Uh, we can make profiles of temperature through the atmosphere with this instrument by doing analysis. And we can even look all the way down to the surface because at one micron wavelength, the atmosphere is almost transparent and, and we can see it actually down to the surface. And this is the first time a spacecraft has an instrument which is dedicated to use this one micron window, as we call it, in the spectrum. It was actually discovered by an Australian uh, astronomer when he was testing a new instrument in the, in the early 80s, 1980s. Uh, before that, it was not known that this one micrometer wave band was transparent down to the surface. The, the, from that instrument, we have got a lot of interesting information. We have also a, another spectrometer, which is called SPICAV, and that one is... Uh, doing occultation measurements. So it looks at a, at a star, it's staring at a star, and then when the spacecraft moves around the planet, eventually the planet will come in between. And, and before the planet comes in between, the atmosphere comes in between. So the, the light from the star will start to go through the atmosphere in, and is dimmed by the atmosphere in a specific way. And that's very characteristic of what, what different gases we have in the atmosphere when this occultation takes place. And um, we have also um, instruments looking at plasma environment, and we have a magnetometer that measures magnetic fields a radio science uh, instrument that is actually used in the telecommunication system of the spacecraft. So when we are sending a radio signal back to the Earth, at sometimes that signal goes through the atmosphere of, of Venus, and then we can also derive parameters like temperature and density in the atmosphere, and we can also look at the ionosphere, what the electron density in the ionosphere is. So that's a very nice complement of instruments uh, that we can use together. How was the journey to Venus? So how did Venus Express get there, and is it... I don't know, easier to get to Venus than it is to Mars, for instance? It's um, not really easier. You, you may need a, a little bit less uh, fuel to get there, but, but basically it's quite similar to go to Venus as to Mars because the distance is approximately, approximately the same. Venus is a little bit closer, but uh, you go inside the solar system. Mars is a little bit away, but you go outside the solar system. But the time it takes to get there is approximately the same. It took five months to get to Venus after the launch, and you don't sort of launch with a rocket will full power just in the direction of Venus at the time uh, uh, you launch, but you actually put the spacecraft into an elliptical orbit, and that is an elliptical orbit around the Sun, where the outermost point in the ellipse is uh, at the Earth, and the innermost point of this ellipse is where Venus will be, actually when Venus, when both Venus and the spacecraft arrived at that place at the same time. So you only have, you only have opportunities to 
go to Venus with this principle every 19 months. That's about one and a half year. So when we launched in November 2005, we then arrived in April 2006. What you need to do then is you, you arrive at Venus with a much higher velocity than Venus arrives. So you have to slow down the spacecraft and then you're actually captured by Venus gravity fields so going into orbit around Venus. Uh, so first we did that and then we ended up in an orbit that took about 10 days to complete uh, each orbit and we wanted to come closer to the planet so we needed to slow down even more so after a couple of weeks we had slowed down so we ended up in an orbit which is 24 hours and that was the orbit we wanted to have so, so then we stayed in that orbit. So where is the probe right now? Well the probe right now is still orbiting Venus. We have changed the orbit uh, a little bit. We have actually done something which is called arrow braking that is that we have slowed down the spacecraft by going a little bit deeper into the atmosphere that's so deep that we actually start sensing the friction from the atmosphere. So you can say that it's like uh, you're driving in the car and you put out your head through the window we will just sense this, this enormous drag against the air but of course uh, on the spacecraft you're flying much faster. We're flying at uh, 10 kilometers per second approximately it's an enormous enormous speed we have and uh, we have done that now for for approximately two months last summer from mid-june to mid-july in total then we reduced our time it takes to do one revolution around the planet we, we have one and a half hours we now have a 22 and a half hour orbit that was mostly done to actually demonstrate the, the, the effectiveness of, of this technique and also to investigate the atmosphere in this in this region that we dipped into that was it's very difficult to do by by remote sensing instruments we really need to go in there to do that so we are now in this orbit we have a um, the nearest point, which is called the pericenter, the nearest point to Venus is at the latitude, which is about 75 degrees. So it's still quite far north from the equator. It's, it's quite near to the North Pole. Uh, and then the um, the highest point, or the point we are furthest away from the planet, is called the apocenter. That is um, near the South Pole, then, but but very much further away from the from the planet. It's about uh, 50 something, between 50 and 60 thousand kilometers. That's a huge difference between the height over those poles of the orbit. So are you doing different things? at the different distance. Yes, exactly. This is this is very useful because we can do really close up observations when we are near the, the northern in the northern hemisphere. We can look at uh, making close up pictures. We can do these occultation measurements to give very high precision in in our in our measurements. And then uh, when we are in in this, with the southern hemisphere, we are close to the epicenter. And also in between, we are doing more global observations where we can see the whole planet in the field of view of the cameras, and uh, and we get a global picture of what's going on. And we all these pictures every day we can see how things change from day to day so it's very useful to have these two two different kind of observations one can do what can venus express see from orbit well in the first instance with the cameras we can see clouds moving around we can see the how the winds blow uh, we can look at uh, what gases we have we can make profiles of the different gases uh, we know that most of the atmosphere is composed of carbon dioxide which of course we, we all know is, is a very strong greenhouse gas because it's very much discussed on the earth but the total pressure on venus is actually much much stronger than, than on earth it's about 92 times as dense down at the surface than it is on earth so we can we can characterize uh, the temperatures and, and the densities of, of the atmospheres. Uh, we make profiles of that at different latitudes and see how that depends on, on the sun, on the time of the day. We can see, we can model how the, how the whole atmosphere actually behaves by using data from temperatures and from how uh, the different gases absorb uh, uh, light from the sun, for example. Because we can also look at 
how parts of the atmosphere are exactly disappearing from the planet and escaping. We know that uh, most likely there was a lot of water on Venus in the early days uh, of the life of Venus. That has been evaporated because of the high temperature and then it goes high up in the atmosphere and then the sunlight is actually disrupting the molecules and the hydrogen part is, is actually blowing away from Venus by the solar wind because there is no magnetic field that can protect really well the atmosphere of Venus. So the, the solar wind can interact with the, with the upper part of the atmosphere and sort of a, almost blow away the hydrogen, the light hydrogen ions that we, we have. But we have seen that also the oxygen atoms have been blowing away. So we really see that a large part of water is still escaping from the planet, even though there's not much left now. It's only maybe 100,000 times less water now than perhaps there was from the beginning. At least we know that there is 100 times less water than there is on the Earth. Uh, today, if you include also the surface water on the, on the Earth. So what would it be like if we were able to stand on the surface? Uh, first of all, you, you would sense uh, a, a tremendous pressure uh, and being 92 bars, uh, it's, it's like being on 900 meters below the surface of the sea on the Earth. It, of course, would be very hot. You would have to have a, a suit on, which is really isolating very well if you could protect also from the pressure, of course. And then you will have you will have a light down there. It's not it's not all dark there, even though we have very thick cloud layers. We have several cloud layers, but the light will be a little bit maybe more yellow, pale uh, compared to what you would have uh, on the Earth. And the funny thing is that even though Venus is closer to the sun than the Earth is, because of this very dense and very bright cloud layer most of the light that falls onto Venus is actually reflected away immediately. So it doesn't even reach the surface. It doesn't even go into the lower atmosphere. By the clouds, it's just reflected away. So 70% of the light that falls onto Venus is actually reflected away. So only 30% of it is coming deeper down, and most of that is unabsorbed. So what comes down to the surface is just a few percent of the sunlight. So there's not so much light there, but it will be enough to see. But you don't see far because uh, this very dense atmosphere of carbon dioxide is, is actually scattering light. So when you see something which is, which is more than a few kilometers away, the thoughts get fussy and, and, and you wouldn't see more than that. If you then look at the surfaces, we, we don't know very much, actually. We only know from these few places where we have uh, images from uh, the Venera missions, from the landers. It's, it's basically quite flat, even though the total distance between the highest point and the lowest point on Venus is very high. But there are very big areas that seem to be very flat, and there, there are both highlands and lowlands. But uh, the area around you, what you would see, you would probably appreciate it being very flat. And some sort of lava basaltic uh, substance we have seen on those places that we have looked at. But um, there may also be other areas on the planet that we don't know at all, uh, at all how they look like, in fact. So tell us more about the geology. Do we think there is active vocal hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yes, in, indeed. We have seen with Venus Express with several instruments, different features that uh, very strongly indicate that uh, there is active volcanism. We have seen, for example, um, we discovered quite early already that there are areas where the surface reflectivity or, or the emissivity, as it's called, uh, where we can see that because of the surface is so hot, it actually emits not light, but em- emits uh, infrared light that we can see with our instruments. And from that, we've been able to determine that some areas are very fresh because they have a very high emissivity, it is called. And you only have that if the area is, is relatively speaking, fresh. And that is in geologic terms. So it can still be thousands of years old, but it's not hundreds of million years old like other areas. So when we discovered these areas, that, by the way, also coincide with areas that we, from the radar missions in the past, suspected would be volcanically active because of the how the large-scale shapes uh, look there. They, we call them so-called hotspots because we expect to be in the mantle below. Uh, we expect it to be lava chambers and uh, be a good potential candidates for be volcanic areas. And those areas indeed show that they were young. So that was the first thing we discovered. But we've also seen that in the atmosphere we have sulfuric dioxide changes that that are very difficult to explain. Suddenly we have very high concentration of of sulfuric dioxide and we think maybe that could be related to a a volcanic eruption. There could be possibly other reasons too, but but I think a volcanic eruption is is a good candidate for that. And we see a lot of variability in in the sulfuric dioxide concentration. And we also know that if there wouldn't be any refilling of the sulfuric dioxide in the atmosphere, all the clouds would disappear because the lifetime of these uh, of these clouds are limited. And if we need to refill the sulfuric dioxide, otherwise that will go down to the surface again and not be up in the atmosphere. And then the third thing is that we have actually seen very recently areas where suddenly from one orbit to the other, the temperature seemed to be increased quite significantly. Then to cool down again a few days later, it is, or a few weeks later, it's, it's cooler again. So this is what we are really investigating run right now because this is very, we are very near the real evidence of, of active volcanism today. You mentioned that Venus in the past was perhaps more like the Earth. So what's our best guess as to what happened to Venus? Yeah, I think that the theory that most people tend to lean towards is that because if you, if you imagine we take Earth, you put it in the position of Venus, you are closer to the sun, and of course it will be warmer. You start getting more water vapor in the atmosphere than, than you have on the Earth, and water vapor is very strong greenhouse gas actually much stronger than carbon dioxide. And that's often forgotten when we discuss the situation about the Earth. And this strong greenhouse gas, the water vapor, will, will then increase even more the temperature and you will boil off even more water from the oceans on, on Venus. And you get an effect that you just start getting more and more water up into the atmosphere. You get a stronger greenhouse effect. And finally, but as long as you have water on the surface, that one is sort of stabilizing the temperature. You, you won't get more than 100 degrees down there until you boil off all the water. But one day you have boiled off all the water, you have all the water up in the atmosphere, the water goes very high up to the atmosphere and the sun is, is, the ultraviolet light from the sun is 
breaking the water molecules apart and they're escaping from the planet. And uh, once you've got all the water away from the surface, you have, you don't have this thermostat anymore. So the temperature can rise dramatically. And uh, what happens when, when the temperature gets up very high, you actually start cooking out the carbonates from the from the rocks. The carbonates are, are an important component of, of the rocks in, in the mountains. And you start actually boiling out carbon dioxide out of the rock. And that's probably why we have this very strong uh, and high uh, uh, level of carbon dioxide dioxide now in, in the atmosphere of Venus. So eventually then, when the temperature got high enough, the water molecules almost disappeared completely from uh, Venus, even though we can detect with the instruments still water vapor down in the atmosphere. But of course, it's totally dominated by carbon dioxide now. So that's why we now have got this, this situation that we have. And on the longer term, there's actually a balance between the carbon dioxide content in the atmosphere and the temperature. So, so we have a sort of a, a long-term thermostat right now that if the temperature gets higher, you actually get uh, more. It acts a bit like a thermostat. You have a balance between the between the carbonates in the rock and the carbon dioxide in, in the atmosphere. That's maintained. That's why we have a, we believe we have a constant temperature right now, very high, but it's constant. We believe on the surface. So, what's the most surprising discovery that has been made by Venus Express? I think that what really has surprised us quite a lot is the level of variability we see in several. Uh, aspects. We have seen, for example, that the wind speed that I discussed, that was one of the main things we wanted to, to study with the mission. The wind speed, had, when we arrived in 2006, we could quite quickly measure that the average wind speed at altitude of the cloud tops, which is about 70 kilometers or so, was approximately 300 kilometers per hour, which of course is very fast. But throughout these years until now, it has increased almost continuously, and now we are up to 400 kilometers per hour. And this is very peculiar. For such a long time, have a constant increase of the wind speeds without anything else really changing. So, so we don't understand that at all. We've also seen these changes in, in the sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere going up and down very much. Uh, there may now be because of volcanic eruptions. We don't know that for sure yet, but we didn't know that we would be that variable. So this is another thing that really have, have changed a lot. We have also seen that the rotation rate of the, of the solid planet itself has changed. It is now rotating a little bit slower than it did at the time of, of, of a Magellan radar mission was there. They could measure the rotation rate very, very accurately, and they knew exactly then where, where in which position Venus was. And now we see that the Venus is not in the rotational position we expected it to be. We see that it actually has shifted a bit because it's it's rotating slower than we thought it did. And that's also something we don't really understand uh, why, why that happened. That's a really peculiar thing. So what is the point of this looking of a mission to Venus? It's not like we can't have a manned mission there. It's not like somewhere we could conceivably go to live. So are we learning things about Venus that give us a wider understanding about other areas of the solar system? Them, and indeed Earth, and indeed, for instance, the global warming on Earth. Yeah, yes, this is exactly the point, that, that Venus is so similar to the Earth that to, to understand well the Earth, how the Earth works, both on, on the short term, but especially on the long term and the, and the evolution, both in the past and the future, we really need to understand Venus too. So Venus is like a laboratory for the Earth where the conditions are a bit extreme now, uh, if you compare to the Earth. But um, if we understand how Venus works, it will tell us really a lot about how the Earth works. And that means that we get a good understanding how we add information about Mars, for example, and also Mercury. But of course, there is not much of an atmosphere around Mercury, but uh, there are other aspects we can learn in the solar system. So understanding Venus is really really, really important to understand the inner solar system in general, and in particular the Earth. So to try to so that you understand everything about the Earth without understanding Venus, it just doesn't fit. One interesting experiment we did, for example, is that we took 
several of the of the most well established climate models of the earth uh, or the cores of these climate models that uh, we use to calculate how the circulation of the atmosphere works they called the general circulation models there are several key uh, models uh, that are, is used by us uh, atmospheric scientists and we took several of those and we put in data from venus on them now of course they're not designed to work for venus but just an experiment we, we put in data from venus to see how that would evolve and if that would actually model what we actually see on venus and we see that they all completely fail and none of them even shows the same thing as the other one and they all show different results and uh, none of them show a result that fits to what we actually see on venus so so that really shows that uh, this is this is a difficult problem and uh, those models are not as, as robust as one may like to have them now of course venus as i said is an extreme case but this is an interesting experiment we did because eventually of course we would like to have a model that describes atmospheres in a general case that you can apply them to any planet which has at least a reasonably well defined atmosphere that one can uh, one can put in the data from but it doesn't work yet today where are we in the life of the mission? We're very near its end now because um, the type of orbit we have with a very high epicenter being very far from the planet and a very near pericenter being very near a planet is it's very sensitive to the pull of the gravity from the sun. And to compensate for that, to avoid that we crash on the planet, we all the time, the regular instances, approximately between one and two months, we need to boost up our orbit so we don't crash to the planet. So we have spent almost all the fuel now we, we had we had from the beginning 550 kilograms when we left the Earth. A lot of that was used for putting us into orbit around Venus. But then since since we arrived, we have been using several kilos per year. And now we are so close that we don't even know how much we have left. We have really uh, emptied our reserves and basically could finish any day now. We think maybe we'll be able to, to operate until uh, until the end of the year, perhaps a little bit into next year. We don't, we don't really know, but we'll try to operate uh, for as long as we can to continue these exciting measurements. Because after all, this is the only space that we have around Venus at the moment and it will take a long time before the next mission will be designed. Even though there is a Japanese mission on its way that actually failed to do a, an orbit insertion several years ago, and they, they may arrive to Venus if they succeed a second time to do this towards the end of next year. But for the moment and for all of next year, we will be, still be the only spacecraft around Venus. So we are trying to really to, to squeeze out the science until the last drop of fuel we have. Hawkins Svedhem, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you. I'm Andy Miller, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Joy. I am a researcher based in the University of Manchester in the School of Earth Sciences and I am a research fellow which means I get a grant from a charity in this case the Leverhulme Trust to study a specific scientific project for a set period of time so I have three years to investigate the part of scientific research that interests me and my particular expertise is that I study the moon and I study samples that have been brought back from the moon by the Apollo mission 
moons. And I also study pieces of lunar meteorites. So these are pieces of the moon, which we've actually found here on Earth. And what I do is I study these samples to understand the moon's geological history. So there's lots of really interesting scientific questions that we can ask about the moon and uh, its relationship to other planetary bodies and the rest of the solar system, including the Earth. And so I'm probing some of these questions in detail and trying to understand the moon's volcanic history, how it got its crust and how geologically diverse that crust is. And perhaps most importantly, my main research efforts are focused on using the moon as a record of impact cratering in the solar system, where fragments of asteroids and comets crash into other planetary bodies, causing hugely disruptive events. So they create giant craters in other planetary surfaces. They can even destroy planetary bodies if the impact event is big enough. And what I'm really interested in is understanding when asteroids and comets were hitting the moon in the past and what that tells us about how disruptive those impacts were. And the reason we want to look at samples from the moon rather than, say, samples from the Earth is the fact that the moon has very, very old rocks. So it preserves a record of these impacts back through four and a half billion years of the moon's history. And that record is a lot deeper and a lot longer than we actually have preserved on Earth. So the moon can be used as an archive to understand the earth as well let's talk about the difference between you mentioned the meteorites that are found on earth but also pieces of moon rock that have come from the apollo missions so what's the essential difference between those two samples once you've got them on earth So the Apollo samples were collected by six missions to the moon. Um, Apollo 11, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin picked up the first lunar rocks in 1969. And then after that, there were five more missions that went finishing with Apollo 17 in 1972. And those missions um, went to various places on the near side of the moon, six localities, and they returned about 382 kilograms of moon rock. So a huge amount. We have some rocks that are the size of a laptop. They're pretty big, down to tiny, tiny grains of dust and sand. a real diverse mix of material. We also have uh, samples that were brought back from the moon by three Soviet Union sample return missions. These were three huge robots that went to the eastern limb of the moon and collected about 300 grams of moon rocks as well. So all of these samples are great because we know exactly where we got them from and we can kind of tie in our interpretation of those samples to specific landing sites on the moon. The disadvantage is all of those samples are from the near side of the moon and from a really small surface area. So they only tell us a limited thing about the moon's geological diversity. Now, the great thing about lunar meteorites, so these are rocks that we find that fall down through these Earth's atmosphere, they get chipped off the moon in impact events, and then we collect them on Earth. The really cool thing about lunar meteorites is they could have come from anywhere on the moon. They could have been chipped off the moon from the far side. They could have come from the poles of the moon. Uh, They could have come from anywhere. And so they provide us with a record of the moon's global geological diversity. We can study the rocks that we wouldn't have otherwise had access to by the missions that have been there. The disadvantage of the meteorites is is we don't quite know where we came from. We can take a pretty good guess. We can say, well, this rock has this chemistry. It's most like this part of the moon, but we don't exactly know. So the research that I've been focusing on is to try and make that link a little bit better and to say, we think this meteorite probably comes from this area and therefore it tells us this about this part of the moon. They provide us with this unique new data set that we don't have. But presumably there's some change happened to the rock on its journey from the moon down to Earth. Does that matter? During the journey from the moon to the Earth, 
as the rock comes down through the atmosphere, its outer exterior is kind of melted away a little bit. And we get the exterior kind of has this glossy, glassy coat that forms, which, which we call a fusion crust. And that actually doesn't really affect the rock. It doesn't change its chemistry, its mineralogy a huge amount. It kind of just affects the outside edge. The big difference is the meteorites land on Earth in places like hot deserts where they sit and they can kind of get wet and they get mixed with rainwater and they get mixed with terrestrial contamination. So we have to try and unravel that contamination out from the chemical signatures of the actual moon rock itself. So it's a little bit complicated, but we have a pretty good grasp on that. The really neat lunar meteorites we find in Antarctica, and the reason those ones are really important and really special is they don't kind of have this contamination problem uh, quite so much. And so we really like the Antarctic lunar meteorites. These have been sitting in a nice cold desert. They don't really interact with the rain. They don't have anybody coming and handling them and touching them. They don't have any um, trees or vegetation interfering with them. So the Antarctic meteorites are pretty pristine light the Apollo samples. You've been to Antarctica looking for them, haven't you? So tell me how you find them. So when we go down to Antarctica, I was really lucky to go twice. I went on an American meteorite hunting trip um, with a US team that go down every build season. Uh, what we do is we fly into McMurdo Station where we get lots and lots of training on how to survive in Antarctica. And then we fly out to the middle of nowhere. We go to the Transantarctic Mountains where we camp on the ice for about five to six weeks in tents. So it's pretty remote. It's pretty cold. You have to be pretty hardy to to want to do that and to live in a small team for that length of time. And then every day you go out on the ice and you get on a skidoo and you drive up and down on a skidoo or you walk around on the ice and you find black rocks, which are meteorites. And we go to the places where we have big concentrations of meteorites, where the kind of ice collection system concentrates large amounts in a very small area. So some teams that go to Antarctica find about 1,200 in about six weeks. Um, When we went last time, unfortunately, we had quite a lot of bad weather. Uh, We spent quite a lot of time sitting in a tent rather than meteorite hunting. And I think we found about 60, but they were really good ones. We found some really interesting samples. So unfortunately, although the weather played its part, we did manage to get some uh, good samples from some of the asteroid belt. Going back to the the samples from the space missions, you described it as quite a lot of material but it's also obviously a finite amount of material how do you get hold of that how is that sort of portioned out amongst what must be quite a lot of researchers on earth who want to look at it so the apollo samples are curated by nasa over in america and they're looked after in a really great curatorial facility where they're kept under pristine conditions they're not handled they're looked after incredibly carefully and incredibly safely And for scientists around the world, we can access material from those Apollo missions by writing a scientific justification. So we say, I would like to study this particular sample to test this scientific theory, to investigate this particular thing, be it the moon's volcanic history or be it even people want to study moon rocks to understand the dust toxicity in relationships to sending future humans to the moon. So we we write an application, they consider that application and they say, yep, this is a great idea, we'll give you the samples or unfortunately your scientific rationale is not good enough, unfortunately this time around you haven't got the samples that you seek. So of the 382 kilograms of moon rock that have been collected, some of that material has been destroyed and lost through scientific analysis but a lot of it is still stored at NASA. And the idea is, is as future generations come along, as future technology is developed to increase our analytical analysis of these samples, uh, more and more work can be done on them. So they're preserved and kept for future generations. 
there is obviously a finite amount and we're not really going to the moon to collect it are we what happens when it runs out so the hope is that it won't run out and the hope is we will go back to the moon before we run out of samples we've already got there's lots of really exciting um, exploration initiatives to go back to the moon both to investigate it as a scientific body so to access material in places we haven't been before so we, we want to investigate really important scientific questions by going back to the moon but as a wider picture, the moon is a really good place to send humans back to practice the type of techniques, test technology to use to go onto other planets like Mars. So Mars is a six month journey away. There's a lot of technology developed before we can actually do that. So the theory is we can kind of use the moon to learn how to live off the land, to act as a remote scientific colony before going on to more complicated places. So what I really hope is that places like the US and the European Space Agency and China and India, uh, there's lots of plans to go back to the moon. So by 2025, 2030, we'll hopefully have more moon rocks back in the lab here on Earth from those types of ventures that we can study. What are you actually doing with those rocks in the lab then? Once you've got a piece of moon rock, whether it's from the moon or whether it's a meteorite in your lab in front of you, what are you doing with it? So we do different things with different types of samples depending on the scientific question. I actually put the samples that I get given in a machine called a noble gas mass spectrometer. And what I do is I use a laser and I actually heat the sample up and I completely destroy it, which is a, a bit sad, but uh, you know it survived all that length of time on the moon. But the reason I heat it up is I want to release the gases that are trapped inside. And then I analyze those gases and I specifically analyze for the element argon. And what I can do is I use the measurements of the different amounts of argon in the sample to actually work out how old the sample is. So I can say this particular rock formed at two billion years ago, three billion years ago, four billion years ago. And then that tells me about the type of geological process that created that type of event. Other scientists use different types of analytical instrumentation. They either measure the wavelengths of particular minerals, uh, they measure the chemistry, they measure different isotopic systems. So it really depends on what your scientific investigation is as to what analytical technique you approach to address that problem. What are you learning about the moon's geology then? Let's talk about perhaps what you've discovered in your work. I've tackled lots of different things by analysing moon rocks. Um, some of the most interesting things I've discovered so far is I actually searched through a lot of lunar soil. So this is the kind of material that forms at the lunar surface. And what I was actually doing was to try and find within that lunar soil actually fragments of asteroids and cometary material. So what we wanted to do is to answer the question, what types of impactors, what types of projectiles have hit the moon at different times in the past? So I went on a bit of a treasure hunt and I found very small uh, millimetre sized fragments, even smaller than that, things the size of a human hair, that were lying in the lunar soil that actually came from other planetary bodies in the solar system. And what we showed was that at about three and a half billion years ago, back to about 3.8 billion years ago, there was a specific archive of asteroidal material that was hitting the moon. And this is important because we think that there was lots of this asteroid material hitting the moon at that point in time. And it tells us that the asteroid belt was delivering a lot of material to the inner solar system. So my findings had implications for understanding the transfer of other planetary bodies in the solar system at that point in time. So it's a treasure hunt, but one that gave us important insights back to 3.8 billion years ago. 
tell me a bit more about the idea of the endogenic and exogenic like material that's from the moon or material that's come from outside and impacted on the moon and what that means for the geology of the moon. So the moon's had a really complicated geological history. Early on in its formation at about four and a half billion years ago, it had a huge amount of magmatism. In fact, it was a big ball of magma, essentially, orbiting around the Earth. And that slowly cooled through time and crystallized and forms different minerals that form different parts of the lunar interior and the lunar surface. And so when you look up at the moon in the night sky and you see the white areas of the moon, these are products of that really early on crustal formation process. The moon then underwent a huge period of bombardment where asteroids and comets hit into it and it created all of the big basins we see. So when you look up, you can see round features on the lunar surface, such as the Imbrian Basin or the Crissium Basin. And these were formed by scars of impacting asteroids hitting its surface. So that went on from about four and a half billion years ago till about 3.8 billion years ago when many of those big basins and craters were being formed. We then had a period of volcanism on the moon. So this is the endogenic partial melting of the lunar interior. And actually, we had volcanoes erupting all over the lunar surface. So when you look up at the moon again and you see the dark patches on its surface, these were made in volcanic eruption events, much like the types of volcanoes we have in places like Iceland or in places like Hawaii, where we have basaltic volcanism. So fire fountaining events and then lava fluxing out over the surface of creating the dark lavas or the mare basalts that we see So the moon's geological history is kind of divided between processes that have gone on internally to form volcanism and magmatism and externally hitting material to kind of scar its surface. Why is there no active volcanism or active geology now? So there's no active volcanism or geology right at the present day because the moon basically ran out of energy. It ran out of juice to actually melt in its interior at about one billion years ago. So we don't have any evidence of volcanism, we think, from that point on. So the last billion years on the moon is pretty much been dead. Uh, It's been hit by asteroids that have been migrating in near-Earth moon space environment. So the very, very bright Copernicus crater on the moon and the Tycho crater on the moon, these were made when asteroids have hit into its surface. But other than asteroids hitting, the moon's really not doing a lot at the present day. The reason that the Earth is so volcanically active is it's a lot bigger, it's a lot hotter, it's producing a lot more magma and lava, uh, creating uh, the types of volcanoes that we see now. But the moon doesn't have any of that. It's essentially pretty much a cold, dead world. Going on what you've just said, what does that then tell us? Does that tell us anything about the future of the Earth? So at some point in time in the future, the Earth's interior will get to the point where it cools and volcanism will probably shut up. So we can study other planets like Mars and Mercury and Venus to give us an insight as to what the Earth might look like in the future in terms of its internal geological cycling. So the subduction processes that form tectonic plates, the drivers for volcanism that we have at the present day. So somewhere down the line, yes, the Earth will run out of its energy sources for creating internal heat as well and will shut off. But that's um, millions, if not billions of years away in the future. So there's nothing to worry about for the time being. What's our current best idea on how the moon was formed in the first place? Where did it come from? So there's lots of models for how we formed the moon. And the current favourite one, which kind of satisfies all the evidence out there, is we think that the moon and the Earth formed in the same event. And this is called the giant impact event. And what we think happened is at 4.5 billion years ago, a planet, probably about the size of Mars, crashed into the early Earth. It was a really catastrophic impact event. It ripped apart the impacting body, this Mars-sized body completely, and mixed the molten products with the Earth itself. Um, When this event occurred, 
Loads of debris was thrown off into the near-Earth-Moon environment, creating a debris disk. And as this debris disk kind of circulated and cooled down, it slowly started to uh, gravitationally attract and form the Moon. So the Moon formed out of this debris disk around the Earth. And so we have uh, the Earth and the Moon have this common origin with each other. So without the Moon, uh, the Earth wouldn't exist as we currently have it. Let's talk about the moon missions that you've been involved in for a little bit then. So the first one is the ESA's Smart One mission. What was that? So the European Space Agency launched a mission to the moon called Smart One in 2003. This was a technology demonstration mission. It was about the size of a washing machine, so quite a small spacecraft. And the idea of the mission was actually to test a science fiction style propulsion system called an ion drive, which requires low amounts of fuel uh, and moves very slowly but can keep going for a very, very long time. And so they needed a destination to test this technology, and the moon's very close by, and so it proved a good testing ground for going. So once they decided they wanted to send a mission to the moon, they selected a, a group of scientific instrumentation to fly on this mission. And the UK won a contract to fly an experiment that was called DKIX, uh, which was a an instrument or an experiment designed to measure X-rays that are being emitted from the lunar surface. So this little tiny experiment was about the size of a toaster. What it did was it used X-rays that were generated from the surface of the moon to measure its chemistry. And the mission launched, and rather than taking three days to get to the moon like the Apollo missions did, uh, this iron propulsion system actually took 18 months to get to the moon. It cooled. It went really, really slowly. But we got there eventually, turned the experiment on, and we collected some data which mapped out the chemical variation of the lunar surface. The problem was, is because because we took so long to get to the moon, we actually flew through the Earth's radiation belt, which damaged our detectors on board. It was really unlucky. And so the type of data we collected wasn't exactly ideal that we set out to do. Although we kind of achieved and we test the technology, we didn't achieve everything we wanted to do from the mission. So after the mission finished, it actually, Smart One was crashed into the moon deliberately near the lunar south pole at the end of its mission. It ran out of fuel and um, it was crashed to generate an impact event into the near side uh, South Polar region. Although this was sad, the mission was over. The good thing that came out of it is that we tested the technology, we showed that it worked, and then we actually built a second instrument that was based on the first experiment. And we flew the second instrument on an Indian space mission called Chandrayaan-1, which flew to the moon a few years later. That got to the moon a lot more quickly, and we actually generated a really good data set from that experiment that we flew on the Indian mission. So that was a success. And we managed to map the surface chemistry of the moon to tell us about the moon's geological diversity. So tell us a bit more about what you learned from that mapping. So we know a lot about the moon's chemistry anyway from other missions. But what kicks and de-kicks could do that other missions have not been able to do was to actually map the moon in new elements. So such as calcium, magnesium. Um, and we mapped, managed to map titanium and silicon as well. And so we managed to show that certain parts of the lunar near side are very rich in aluminium and that there is chemical diversity in some of the mare basalts that relates to its volcanic past. So we're still interrogating the data. We published several bits of work on this now and we're trying to uh, make sense of some of the data because it's quite complicated to be able to say exactly what some of it means. So watch this space on some of the results. We'll be trying to get that out pretty soon. The actual crash landing of Smart One onto the moon perhaps seems a controversial thing to do. What was the scientific benefit of doing that? 
Crashing a spacecraft into the moon is always a difficult decision. Um, there's always questions about what happens if you smash the spacecraft into, say, one of the Apollo landing sites. That would be a pretty big disaster, wiping out Neil Armstrong's footprints on the lunar surface. The other considerations are, is the spacecraft is actually carrying quite a bit of fuel with it. And so there's a real danger that actually some of these spacecrafts crashing into the lunar surface can contaminate it for the future. So they introduce um, hydrazine, and other types of liquid fuel that actually contaminate the lunar soil. But that actually is deemed to be, in some places, it's the right thing to do because we can actually test certain questions. So there has been spacecraft crashed into the moon in the past, such as the LCROSS mission uh, and such as Lunar Prospector, Smart One, and there was the Indian Chandray One impact probe. And all these missions were crashed into polar regions to see if we could actually kick up lunar dust that might have ice mixed in with it. So there's been theories to suggest that there is ice buried in some regions of the lunar pole. Um, it's very difficult to send spacecraft there to sample that and answer that question in situ by landing a robotic spacecraft. So by crashing these missions into the poles, we hope to kick dust up and detect ice from orbits, either from ground-based observations or by other spacecraft in orbit around the moon to address this question about ice at the lunar poles. Okay, so that might be the answer to my next question then. So I was going to say, of those two missions that you worked on, what was perhaps the most surprising discoveries of them? Oh, well, that's a good question, actually. The missions that I was involved with, or the experiment packages on the missions that I were involved with, made scientific discoveries, but they weren't hugely beneficial to understanding the moon. So we're still trying to understand the data and the kind of more technology development for the future. However, on board the spacecraft, uh, that, that we were involved with, Chandrayaan-1, there's been some really neat discoveries. So there was a radar on board that mission, which actually analysed um, and detected ice at the lunar poles. And there was another instrument package which detected the presence of water bound up in some of the lunar regolith soils that uh, were across the planetary surface of the moon, um, telling us that the moon might actually be slightly damp rather than being as dry as we think it is. So the really important scientific questions that have been answered are all to do with the moon's kind of volatile record and if it has water or if it doesn't have water and where that water is in different places. So what does our study of the moon tell us or I guess enable us to do about studying the wider solar system? So the moon can be scientifically investigated to understand lots of different solar system questions. We don't think there was ever any life on the moon. So it's not interesting like Mars is to understand early life processes or the uh, early history of the Earth in that respect. However, the really neat thing about the moon is that it can tell us to understand how planets formed and how they formed their different early geological structures. So we, that record has been lost on the Earth. It's probably been lost on Mars. It's been lost on Venus because all of the volcanism has kind of wiped out that early record. However, on the moon, we can kind of use that to understand early planetary formation processes. I've maybe mentioned already, it's a really important archive of impact cratering in the rest of the solar system. So we can use it to understand the rates of impact bombardment of asteroids and comets hitting all the other planets to understand the transfer of that sort of material through the solar system. Where would you like to see uh, exploration of the moon go in the future? I would like to see human beings back on the moon with a geological hammer in their hand, collecting more moon rocks and carrying out surface science geology. Lots of people are really critical about human space exploration because it costs a lot of money, because there's 
great destinations elsewhere in the solar system to go. I mean, I'd like to see astronauts on the surface of Mars. I think that's a really important thing to do. I think Mars is an amazing place. We should be sending astronauts. But realistically, it costs huge amounts of money to go to Mars. Um, it's really dangerous to get there. And we aren't at that point of being able to develop that technology to go. I think we have to be realistic. Therefore, the moon is only three days away. It could be a really good test bed where we could do a lot of great solar system science, not just for the moon, but for understanding the solar system as well. And I really, really would like to see astronauts walking on its surface. What a human being can achieve in one day in an eight hour traverse on the lunar surface is what a rover can achieve in about three or four years. So we can be getting samples. We can be testing scientific hypotheses relating to understanding the Earth and other planets as well by sending human beings and making serendipitous discoveries. There's a huge amount of things we just don't know. Um, you know, the Apollo missions turned up things that we could never imagine before we got there. And so I think it's a really worthwhile aspiration to use the moon to learn those sorts of techniques and mission planning that then we can go on uh, and explore the asteroid belt, the moons of Mars and Mars itself in the future. Would you go yourself to the moon? I mean, not Mars. Don't go to Mars. That's crazy. <laughs> I would love to be one of those astronauts. I think I have a good geological understanding of its surface. Uh, I get travel sick, so I'm not sure how uh, traveling three days in a spacecraft could suit me. Uh, I think I've proved myself by going to Antarctica that I can just about live with other people for a long period of time in quite an intense environment. But uh, being realistic... I think the first people that will be going back to the moon will be the Chinese and will be US citizens going with NASA. I don't know how involved the UK will be in future European Space Agency ventures, but I just hope it doesn't matter what nation that goes. Um, I hope the ones that do go, that bring back samples, allow the rest of the world to be able to study them. Dr. Katie Joy, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. That's okay. Thank you for talking to me. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.